Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. My guest today is Adam B. Levine. Adam is managing editor at Coindesk, one of the most popular news sites in the cryptocurrency space and host of the podcast Speaking of Bitcoin. Adam, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you for having It's great to have you here. I wanted to get you on as a way of checking in with the space of decentralized technologies like blockchain. This is a space I was involved in myself for a few years in the mid-2010s when I worked for companies like Polymath. I find it fascinating and it most certainly fits within this show's theme of the fringes of science and culture. But let's start with a basic question. Why should anyone care about this crypto space? Mm, I love this question. So it took me a lot of years to figure out how to say this, but uh, but basically, blockchains are just a better way to track who owns what stuff on the internet. And so if you think about that, that's actually really useful. And it's something that we kind of all should care about. And in the world of cryptocurrency, just thinking about it for a second, what Bitcoin wants to be, perhaps, or maybe already is, is a form of money or a form of digital gold. And so what a blockchain does in that context, what this technology at its base layer does in that context, is it tells you who owns what digital gold, which is really, really useful. And then you look beyond Bitcoin and you see projects that are looking for, you know, who owns, uh, you know, what computational power on the Internet, who owns what storage power on the Internet, who owns assets that are stored on the Internet. Right. And blockchains are really useful for figuring that out. I got into cryptocurrency as a result of my experiences, uh, basically, um, basically uh, doing like a, a traditional, you know, sales. Um, and shipping goods all around kind of the, the world. Um, and what I found is that in the real world, we have really great ways to tell who owns what stuff. But if you look at that same process and you say, okay, instead of shipping a case of you know, toilet paper to somebody, instead I wanna transfer a domain name from me to you, that's a really, really, really hard process because we don't really have a good way to transfer that. We have lots of lots of individual systems, but when you try and put that together and you know I'm on GoDaddy, and you're on Namecheap, and you know we're trying to transfer a, a you know one of these uh, domain names from one person to another. It's a lot like I have to throw it up into the air at the exact time that you have to be catching it while also sending the money to me. And so in practice, it's just it's a complicated thing that then winds up needing lots of people involved, escrow agents, right? Right. So so you have the the, the two parts of it. One part of it is the moving things from one place to another. And we seem to have solved that a long time ago on the internet in terms of protocols like email for messaging people that somehow get to where you're sending it, even if people are on different domain names or different servers or whatever else it is. And then you have the secondary part, which is the coming to an agreement about I guess, about what happened and an agreement that's not just between you and me, like I send you an email, you get it. And so clearly we both agree that I sent you an email, but at a more global level, how do we agree on this the ownership that you're talking about? Yeah. And how do we do it without having to trust any person or any company to, to effectively be fair in that, right? How do we do it without needing to trust anybody 
but to still make it so that you and I can make that transfer to make that trade together. And that's what blockchains do. And that is something where throw out everything else that blockchains can do or that different token protocols or decentralization, that in and of itself is revolutionary and world changing. There was a lot of talk at the beginning of this era, especially when things moved from Bitcoin to other technologies like Ethereum about about this issue of trust and about having a, a central authority that you had to trust versus trusting the code. I was at uh, the very first uh, decentralized hackathon, which was in Toronto and judged by Vitalik, the main creator of Ethereum. Um, I, I lost that hackathon. I did uh, win uh, a later one as part of a team uh, a, a year or two later, also judged by Vitalik. I liked Ethereum. Ethereum allows you to do more than Bitcoin, though the early development was chaotic, to say the least. But then in, in 2016, Ethereum committed what I think of as its original sin, which mm -hmm. I think still haunts the project today, and it had a lot to do with trust. Could you give, if possible, a non-technical description of the DAO, and what was it and what happened to it? Sure. Yeah, so um, so a DAO, not the DAO, but just a DAO in general stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And it's a concept that was getting talked about pretty much when I first got into the space back in 2012, 2013. They were originally referred to as Decentralized Autonomous Corporations. But then people were like, oh, wait, if we do that, then they must be regulated like corporations. So let's call them organizations instead. So the DAO was one of the first instances of these. And basically, you can think about this as like a company that goes public on the very first day that it becomes available, right? That it, that it, that it starts to do business. And it does this by allowing people to pay for tokens that are effectively ownership or governance shares within uh, within whatever the organization is. And these organizations tend to, at least in theory, be very focused on a singular mission. In the case of the DAO, um, that one was focused not really so much on a singular mission. It was more a place where all the cool kids put money into to then fund other projects that they hoped would become valuable for the DAO. Um, in practice, what happened was it gained lots and lots and lots of money, millions and millions of dollars. I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was over a hundred million. At, at um, one point, it had it had that much money, yeah. and of course, the the value of the currency fluctuates versus the dollar quite a bit. Right. But yeah, it was up over a hundred million dollars at, at I mean, one point of people's investments. And just to be clear to listeners, this is money that people put into this virtual organization with the idea that the virtual organization would then go do things and then eventually return in some form a profit to the people who had put the money in. Yeah. Typically, the way that these things are phrased is that uh, you put money in and then you get tokens back and then you can use your tokens to, you know, help control what the organization, what the DAO is going to do. And then your tokens, to the extent that the DAO is successful, will become more valuable. So it's just kind of, it's very analogous to owning shares in a company, except that you are also kind of helping to actually operate the company in, in that context. So what, what happened was that uh, this was very new technology, very, very new technology. And it, uh, the short version is did not go well. Um, money was lost, uh, significant amounts of money were lost. Um, and again, it gets back to this whole idea you brought up earlier, which is this code is law thing, right? Yeah, what in, does that mean? Yeah, so, so what that means is that in the real world, 
you know, you can be sued about anything because there is no, because there's a, a criminal code out there, right? But the process by which you attempt to get some sort of outcome from that criminal code, right? Or from the civil code for that matter, um, is you you go through the judicial system. And the judicial system is the system that is designed to effectively provide consensus and to give a, a fair answer in any given situation. Um, when you're talking about code is law, the idea the idea here is that unlike the traditional system where we need lawyers and we need judges, we can instead just have systems where every outcome is accounted for in the code. And so if something happens, then uh, everybody agrees that that is what is supposed to happen. Now, this is a beautiful idea in theory, but in practice, turns out this is really, really hard to do. Before, before, we, before we get to things going wrong, just to give an example, a little toy example that might make it clear how this could work, you could set up a game of chess, say, and you could code all of the rules of chess, and then you could code rules about people having to put in their money before the game began. And then as soon as the all the moves were out and you'd have rules about time limits for the moves and everything else, the program would automatically pay out. So in the sense of being trustless, the code is the law. You trust that the code is written correctly and then the code automatically enforces the rules of the game and pays people out. So there's, in in theory, there is no way to cheat, uh, and you know, and and lose the game of chess, but bribe the refs into saying that the other person cheated or whatever else it is. So that's the that's the in theory uh, idea behind it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the in theory. And again, just continuing your example. So okay, you've eliminated bribing the judges, right? Mm -hmm as the thing that you could do, you know, in a non-code is law situation. But but what but what that has cost you is now you are at the mercy of however good your code is. And to the extent that there are weaknesses with your code, to the extent that instead you can just make an illegal move and turns out the code actually doesn't prevent you from doing that, well, if the code is law, then that means that you were able to do something that was against the rules and that's okay, right? And so that's kind of where this idea comes back to. Now, in the case of the Dow, it wound up with lots of people losing money, right? Uh, I believe what was found was it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really a hack. People get kind of lazy when they talk about this stuff and they talk about these things as hacks or exploits or something like that. In practice, what it was is somebody found a loophole and jumped through that loophole and dragged out a bunch of the money that was in this organization intended for these purposes uh, was now suddenly used, this loophole was used to pull that money out. And uh, did you want to talk about that at all? Or shall I just I, jump I don't, straight I don't think it's okay. worth going too far into the into the weeds there. I was Indeed. debating that there. But the I think that the tricky thing about the analogies is that they, that they, we use analogies and those analogies automatically have a certain moralism to them. So I was going to go, oh, well, it was a lockbox and someone found a way to open up the box inappropriately. But that's not right. If the code is law, then someone found a way to use the rules to pull out the, not just the money that they had originally put in, the tokens that they had originally vested. It was actually, I guess, one little fun trivia about it was that the, the, the exploit involved using something that was supposed to be a safety precaution. So it was a little bit of a Chernobyl situation where um, one of the supposed safeguards was actually what ended up bringing it down. But the, the, the tricky part is just to talk about it in a, in a general way without automatically going, oh, well, he broke into it and took something out. The, when, if the code is law, then what he did was found a way to make the code work for himself.
That's right. I mean, or, or she, uh, right. Yeah. Still unknown. So yeah, I mean, the, the concept of code is law, like I said, it's a beautiful idea, but in practice, when we see these think these types of things happen and they do happen pretty frequently, right? What, what, what I come to is this concept of emergent complexity being so, so ridiculously dangerous when it comes to all of this stuff. And people in the crypto space are so anxious to try out new things because sometimes they turn into a lot of money that you wind up with this weird kind of asymmetrical set of, of incentives where on the one side, you know, the DAO may have been completely secure, you know, to a million dollars, right? But after you cross that threshold and now it's $10 million and now it's $100 million, well, effectively, you know, I think about these things a lot like I think about, you know, like a, um, like a, a piggy bank or a pinata, right? It's like if the pinata is hard to get into and, you know, there's not very much in it, then there's really no incentive for even if you think maybe you can, there's no incentive for you to do it. But as you know that there's more and more and more stuff that you want in there, the temptation to crack it open just becomes obvious, right? And at a certain point, it's kind of a dumb idea not to do it, assuming that you know a such secret because somebody else is probably going to take advantage of it first. And in practice, that's what we see happen with these things. The security can be completely reasonable at these lower dollar figures, but as that value goes up and it attracts more attention, then you see these types of things happen over and over again. I think that's a really important point, and one of the things that that if you have a situation where the code is law, where the rules are written down in, and that's that in the software algorithm, then that is almost certainly going to be inflexible unless you want to have mechanisms to update it, and that is a, a huge kind of vector for attack, right? Complexity, but the the issue there is that yeah, the more the more you take in, the more you're incentivizing people to find a, a loophole or an exploit or whatever you want to call it, and over time, it, you know, if that code is static, then you know, then sooner or later. Uh, it seems likely that if the money is big enough, the incentive is big enough, then uh, there are a lot of talented people working in that space. Someone is going to figure out how to, you know, how to use that code to their own advantage, even if it's not the original intention of the people who wrote the code. Which is great for tech, right? I mean, in terms of like incentivizing people to find problems with, with uh, these types of systems, like there's nothing wrong with that at all. The only point at which it becomes problematic is when it's not a science project you're working on. It's not this hypothetical thing, right? It's hundreds of millions of dollars. And again, like to the extent that code is law, you know, comes into, into conflict with kind of real life and people's expectations, that's where you suddenly have the people who are yelling the loudest about how code is law, code is law, this is the way that it works. We don't need the legal system suddenly going and, you know, asking for recourse from the traditional legal system because things didn't go like they wanted. So, you know, we'll get there, but it's definitely, again, like it's a, it's going to be a long process before personally I trust this sort of thing, you know, with this idea that code is law, but, but it could be a thing. So that gets us to what happened to the DAO. So someone found a way to use the code in a way that was highly beneficial to themselves, um, and almost certainly not what they had originally intended with the code. And then people start losing not just a little bit of money, but people start losing tens of millions of dollars of uh, virtual uh, money, but nonetheless money that could be pulled out and turned into houses and cars and property of all sorts. 
And then a funny thing happens. Um, this is still in the early days of Ethereum. And they say, you know, can we get a mulligan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's not a bad way to think about it. Um, so in kind of the world of cryptocurrency, there's this idea of immutability, where the idea is, is that we are creating a record that is a permanent record. And that permanent record, by nature of it being permanent, can be relied upon because it can't be changed, even if there are really, really good reasons why someone might want to. In practice, what happened here is that so many of the early stakeholders, and again, this is somewhat this is a somewhat controversial way to think about it, but many of the early stakeholders who were really important to making decisions within the world of Ethereum in those early days were very much in favor of bailing out the this organization not the least uh not not and the smallest reason uh, among them was not that they didn't have money invested in this many of them did have significant money invested into this and there was also a perception that it would create a kind of crisis of confidence around why would people put funds into these types of structures moving forward why would people sort of uh do this if it if the first experience was a very negative one and there were concerns that could kind of set back the technological movement by a long time so long and short of it whether right or wrong they justified to themselves this idea that they would create a new version of the blockchain that would take the history so far except for the dao and it would completely unwind the dao um, such that it just had never happened and this led to the split uh, between Ethereum, the chain as we know it today, and Ethereum Classic, which is actually the original Ethereum chain and protocol, um, but was abandoned because it did have this, uh, this uh, opportunistic use of the code in order to extract money from the DAO uh, for whoever figured out that loophole. Um, and as a result, we have two different versions of Ethereum still today. So essentially, in my view, what happened, and I should say this was extremely controversial at the time and, and still is uh, today, uh, as as evidenced by that uh, continuing kind of original um, original chain where the money was never returned, where the the clock was never set back to before this happened uh, for the for the sake of the DAO. Basically, what they did was they decided that they didn't really like the code, so they were going to use politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and lobbying, and they succeeded, and they broke that thing that you mentioned, immutability, which is the promise that once something is done, that it can't be undone. So in Bitcoin, you can send someone money, but if you want that money back because you've decided that was an accident or because they didn't deliver the goods or for whatever reason, you're always free to ask for that money back. You are free to go to a judge in the real world and say, hey, this person has defrauded me and I need to get my money back. But the thing that you can't really do is go to the Bitcoin community and say, man, this person, uh, this person owes me my money back. Give me my money back uh, or punish him or her for taking my money. The, the, the technology itself is not really structured to do that kind of a refund as a you know as a political thing it that is what immutability gives you for better or worse no yeah that's basically it i mean it's you know it's controversial i think with people who think deeply about these things but i don't actually think that this is something that has caused a meaningful hangover or repercussion for the kind of main line ethereum thinking 
Ethereum really has always been much more of an experimental protocol. And this was early enough in the cycle that they were able to get together consensus in order to do it. Now, there are definitely people who disagree. There's definitely sort of the minority uh, perspective that this should have never been done. And I even believe that for a very long time. But in hindsight, you know, looking back on what Ethereum has developed into since those early days, I don't really think it's hurt them much. Um, and I think that uh, because of that, it's, you know, it's a, I, I don't really have a problem with it too much uh, as, as kind of time has gone on. My concern was that it would hurt legitimacy because people would think, oh, well, there's no immutability here. So why would I use something like this? And in practice, I don't think many people really care. I think it's certainly the case that based on the continued existence and uh, the continued growth of the project that I think that's evidence that you're right, that uh, not enough people cared to make the original chain the dominant thing that everybody is is working on, um, though, you know, that has had spillover effects for sure. And it's interesting to see these kind of ideas around immutability play out. When we get back, I want to ask you about Compound, which is a little bit different, but it it deals with some of those same ideas about code is law and fairness and, and, and so forth. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with Adam B. Levine. He is managing editor at Coindesk, which is a news site for the cryptocurrency space, including Bitcoin and other projects like that. And we are talking about the ways in which there is the layer of technology and then sometimes that technology fails for whatever reason, and then human beings get involved and they do various things. And there was a, a is a project called Compound, and instead of just going with a what the hell is Compound, I'm gonna read a tweet from the CEO of Compound, and then maybe we can kind of pick it apart bit by bit and try to understand what's going on here and then what is the broader significance and what are your thoughts about this in terms of the, the, the broader implications or the moral arguments on, on either side? Here is the, the tweet, and for the listeners, this may not make much sense at first, but we're going to try to go through it here and, and make it make sense. He, uh, Robert Leshner, the CEO, writes, If you received a large incorrect amount of comp from the compound protocol error, Please return it to compound time lock, and then there's an address. Keep 10% as a white hat. Otherwise, it's being recorded as income to the IRS, and most of you are doxxed. That's, uh, that's what he writes. Um, I'll, I'll start us off just by pointing out that comp is one of those tokens, like the uh, tokens that we were talking about earlier for the DAO. Um, so what is going on here? Why does he want this return? What's going on in a general sense? Yeah, so a lot of the way that these protocols work or these projects work is they incentivize you to provide liquidity to them, right? To take money or tokens or something like that that you have and then to put it into a pool with them, which they can then use to make money and other opportunities. I'm not exactly sure how Compound does it, but that's how these DeFi protocols in general do it. 
Uh, a part of that is DeFi that, would be decentralized finance. Thank you. Yeah, decentralized finance. So uh, I've, it's basically an additional like uh, set of applications built on top of blockchains like Ethereum that allow you to do things that were traditionally done by investment banks or by hedge funds or you know market makers, but instead to do them in a decentralized way by pooling liquidity together, uh, money together with different people. Uh, and companies, and then doing it through these kind of decentralized protocols. So things so, like loans or exchanging one kind of crypto for another, one token for another, or, for or example. Or just as simple as an interest earning account, right? Mm -hmm. Like we used to be able to use banks for that, but you really can't anymore. And so a lot of these projects have gotten very popular because they offer, you know, between 4% or, you know, even hundreds of percent um, in terms of uh, like uh, annualized return. Um, in order to lock up your money with them. So uh, so Compound is one of these. Um, it has a variety of business lines, but that's kind of what you need to know that's important. Um, so as part of that, what they do and what many of these projects do is they actually award people interest or whatever the kind of reward is in their own token, in this case, Comp. And so what happened is either through a bug in their code or by somebody just making a mistake, they wound up sending about $89 million worth of tokens uh, incorrectly to the users of their protocol. Um, so this means that, you know, you might've been expecting to get, you know, a couple of bucks, a couple of hundred dollars, and instead you got thousands of dollars, or even in some cases, perhaps, you know, like even more hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so by nature of these protocols being decentralized, again, getting back to this code is law perspective, um, you know, they really have very bad options right now in terms of how do you solve this problem? You accidentally paid people who you are, who are your customers and who you want to be happy with you, $89 million that you weren't intending to, to pay them. How do you get that back? And so what he's doing there is a little bit of carrot, a little bit of stick and all, all weakness. I mean, like it's, it's such a weak position to be in right there. You really got to feel sorry for the guy because there isn't much that he can do. And he's doing the worst of all of it in, in that. Right. So well, let's what, go through yeah. those. What the, the carrot he mentions, keep 10% as white hat. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? So a white hat, uh, white hat uh, refers way back to the days of cowboy films, right? You could tell the good guys by the, uh, you know, the gunslingers, you could tell the good guys because they uh, wore white hats and you could tell the bad guys because they wore black hats. And so that's where this, this dichotomy comes from. And in practice today, we hear it often used uh, in reference to hackers. So a black hat hacker is somebody who hacks uh, maliciously with the attempt to, you know, steal things or lock up your computer, you know, with ransomware or something like that. And a white hat is a benevolent hacker who is also finding, you know, they're still a gunslinger, right? They're still a hacker, but instead of doing it for evil or, or for their own purposes, they're doing it to help people, right? So a, a real example of a white hat hacker is somebody who uh, tests a website for, uh, for vulnerabilities, finds those vulnerabilities, but rather than exploiting them themselves, rather than, you know, breaking into the bank, instead they go to the bank and they report, Hey, you have a hole in your back door here that I could use to steal from you. So you should probably patch that. And then a white hat will often be paid what's called a bug bounty. Um, where the company is offering a reward for people to find vulnerabilities in their system, but to not exploit them, instead tell them about it so they can fix them. And then they pay them something like that. So that's that's what in the traditional kind of tech world, a white hat uh, is. In practice, what it is here is they made a mistake. Uh, you know, the company Compound just made a big mistake. And they can't force anybody to give anything back. And the people who received these funds, they didn't do anything wrong, right? The, the company didn't make the mistake as a result of actions that their users took. They just made the mistake and their users were the beneficiaries of it. And so what they're saying basically is 
if you help us solve our problem, we're willing to take a 10% loss and you can keep 10% of whatever you want. And we're not going to, we're not going to say that you stole that. We're going to say that this is a reward that we're giving to you. So long as you give us back the other 90%, because again, losing, you know, losing $8.9 million is a lot more, is a lot better than losing $89 million. And so that's kind of the, the happy scenario that they're hoping to achieve. So but that, it's terrible that's... either way. That's the the carrot version. And if you want to picture this visually, and I like visualizing things like this, it's like they were walking around with some, you know, with some bundles of cash, and they walked way too close to a giant fan or something. And then it blew it out to all of the people who were ready customers, but you know, were not expecting that money. And now they're going to them, I imagine this would be their kind of moralistic story, they're going to them and saying, hey, you know, it just, the the wind, it was an act of God, the, you know, the cash ended up in your hands, but we understand that, you know, that you might want not want to give all of it back or whatever, give us 90% of it back, we'll let you keep the, the 10%, and, you know, no harm, no foul, eh? Uh, right, but but all they can do from the the carrot perspective is offer some kind of a reward. So then we get to the the final sentence here where the CEO writes, Otherwise, it's being reported as income to the IRS, and most of you are doxxed. What, what exactly is he saying there? This is, it's a very funny way to do this. Again, it just speaks to the weakness of the situation that they're in right now. So basically what they're saying is that we're the IRS that, that we gave you this money, and as a result, you'll have to pay taxes on it. And so for most people, that seems fine, because instead of giving back 90% and keeping 10%, well, assume for a second you're in the highest tax rate, right? Uh, you know, a short-term capital gain, something like that. Well, you're still going to keep at least 40% of it, really irrespective of where you are. The bigger threat here, and the reason why doxed comes into play, um, doxed basically means that people on the internet, they're going to tell people on the internet, or in this case, tell the IRS who you are, right? They're going to tell them, here's your real identity, and they're going to know that you have this income. And to me, the implication of that in terms of the only way that that could be a threat is that they think that most of their customers, or at least a significant number of their larger clients, aren't disclosing this business that they're doing with compound and aren't paying taxes on it because otherwise that's a terrible threat right like pay taxes on it legally keep 40 percent versus give 90 percent back to us and keep 10 percent, which will would also be income right also be income as far as uh the the irs is concerned so so that's kind of what what they're saying they're they're on the one hand uh very much uh, they just they just want people to give the money back because that would solve their problem. And on the other hand, they're saying if you don't give the money back, then assuming you have not done you know proper compliance as far as your taxes are concerned and haven't paid taxes, then you're going to get in trouble with the IRS. So do you want to get in trouble with the IRS or should you just give it back to us and keep the 10 percent? It's worth thinking for a moment about really you alluded to that, just how strange that is. You are in a sense saying, I know all of you guys, my customers are tax cheats, um, and I will rat you out to the to the you know to the IRS unless you you know unless you give back the money, um, which is a very very I don't you know I don't know actually if I've ever seen a statement like that. It's also in an interesting way. Uh, almost a straddling the line thing where, you know, I as I'm reading the sentence, I'm reading it in kind of a threatening way. But, 
you know, I suppose from the CEO's perspective, it could just be a like, hey, the reality is the information's going to get out there and yada yada, right? And so you're all, you're all going to get hosed, right? But but it's not there's making that interpretation is a little bit tricky in the light of the use of the term doxed and the way it's phrased right yeah yeah doxed really does tend to have negative connotations surrounding it right like it's not a nice thing to tell somebody that you're going to do it's a threat um and it and again in the age of the internet right like it's a real threat it's like a, a substantial threat um, so, no, I mean, again, like you almost have to feel sorry for the folks at Compound and, and, you know, their CEO, Robert Leshner, because he does not have any good options. And again, like it speaks to the fact that that they're just in a really, really weak position. And I don't think this helps them at all. Again, like it's not making their customers happy, right? Their customers aren't like, you know, oh, man, these people are really competent and also they're nice. And also I'm making lots of money, right? You kind of got to pick the ones of that that you're willing to go with and they kind of come at the expense of the others. So no, it's a it's a terrible situation for them to be in. Uh, and again, like think about it from the customer perspective for a second. Assume that you do pay, you know, all of your taxes, and assume that they even can figure out a way to use the legal system to get it back. Well, that's probably going to take a couple of years. And in that time, those tokens could be put to work in you know one of these interest-bearing accounts we were talking about, and probably return significantly more. So again, like it's kind of up to Compound and the team over there to prove that. Uh, there is an obligation to give this back. Otherwise, they're just kind of screwed. One of the nice things, if you're willing to accept the sharp edges that come with the idea of the the code as law and the idea that if a company has messed up, if their code is messed up and it's handing out free money or whether some person found a, a loophole in the code to extract that uh, that money, if you if you take the code is law ethos and you hold to it, the sharp edge is that a lot of money could be lost. On the other hand, you get finality. You get what you mentioned about immutability, and you get a certain kind of stability, and the world goes on. One of the core concepts in Bitcoin is that of fungibility. And it depends on things just going on. Maybe if you don't mind, could you give a, a little bit of information on what is that fungibility and how does that interact with the idea of money being tainted in a transaction like this or not? Sure. Yeah. So fungibility is simply the idea that when you pull out your wallet and you have 10 $1 bills in it, that each of those $1 bills is the equivalent and exchangeable for any other $1 bill. They are fungible with all other $1 bills. Um, so that might mean that, you know, on one of your dollar bills, somebody drew something on, right? Like, uh, you know, like put, put something on it. Uh, that still is exchangeable for any other $1 bill. And so it's much the same with Bitcoin. Um, and with any sort of these cryptocurrencies, the idea here is that uh, they are fungible tokens. So every Bitcoin, every piece of Bitcoin is interchangeable and, you know, effectively replaceable by any other piece of Bitcoin. There is no difference. Now, this idea gets a little bit complicated when instead of looking at what people are doing with money right now, you track it back, right? And you say, all right, well, what did people do with money? Where did this Bitcoin come from? Where did this dollar bill come from, right? Uh, putting it into kind of uh, physical terms, like, 
you know, what if this dollar bill was earned by somebody who is doing some type of pornography or something else that you personally find distasteful, right? Would you want to accept that dollar bill? Or would you prefer a dollar bill that didn't have any connection to something that you find to be distasteful? This is where you get this idea of blacklists. So imagine, again, keeping in dollar bill terms, what if the government maintained a list or what if a bank maintained a list of, every, of serial numbers of every dollar bill that was ever used, um, you know, in pornography or something like that as a, as a, you know, as party to one of those transactions. Well, which would probably be every dollar bill out there. Oh, yeah. one point or another. <laughs> Very quickly. Yeah. And that, and, and that, and that is the challenge around all of this stuff is that money moves a lot, right? Money, the whole purpose of it under normal circumstances is that it moves around the economy, you know? And so the money that I spend to go buy tires, you know, then gets spent by the person who sold me the tires to go buy bread, then gets spent by the person who sold him the bread to go, you know, pay their rent, um, something along those lines. And you have this concept of money moving, uh, you know, very quickly under most circumstances, under, you know, circumstances that the government would prefer, um, creating a good kind of rate of velocity and allowing the economy to be very liquid. When you start looking at this idea of breaking fungibility, really what you're saying is that actually not all dollars are the same. We need to separate some dollars, or in this case, we need to separate some Bitcoin or some Ether or whatever token we're talking about, because they have a different characteristic about them and can't be treated in the same way. This is a very self-defeating idea. And in practice, we've really never seen anything like it happen, although there have been some attempts uh, recently listing you know, certain accounts that are covered by sanctions, uh, specifically within the US. Um, which does kind of give pause to this. But but so far, at least, most of these protocols have re managed to retain uh, a fully fungible currency, whether we're talking about Bitcoin or Ether. Um, although, you know, that could change as time goes on. Certainly, it would make certain things easier. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of fungibility and why it is core to everything and what happens when you try to take pieces of currency or really any asset and almost stigmatize them, I guess you'd say. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with Adam B. Levine, and we are talking about things related to the crypto space. We were talking in particular about the idea of fungibility, which is that one can exchange a particular good for anything else in that same class, and that every dollar bill is the same as every other dollar bill. One of the things that companies will do if they make a mistake, like was made by the compound crew who had this decentralized financial program that was running, it would let people do things like loan out money to the company and get interest and exchange one kind of currency for another virtual currency. So their program had a mistake, that mistake gave people a lot of money, and in, a, in essence, their CEO said, look, you can keep 10% of it, give us back 90%, walk away, all good. Or if you don't, we're going to basically make it so that you have legal troubles by reporting you to the IRS, seems to be the implication. Now, if he does that, one of the things that it does, in essence, is it makes those particular tokens held by that particular user somewhat not as fungible 
in the sense that if you are a buyer of tokens on their particular platform, you might not want to take on those particular tokens because they come with a kind of stigma. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree? What do you, what's your take there? I don't really think that the, the, I don't really think fungibility is impacted here because one thing they notably didn't do is they didn't say you have stolen property, right? They didn't say you are in possession of tokens that belong to us because the way that they gave them out, that wasn't the implication. The implication is that they belong to the person that they sent them to, otherwise they wouldn't have sent it to them. Now, they made a mistake and they sent them an amount that was not what they intended, but they still did it. And so it's notable in that comment that uh, that we read at the, at the kind of beginning of last segment that there's really no claim that would uh, threaten to encumber these tokens. There's really a plea, uh, you know, to to help uh, and to help them undo their horrible mistake. And then there's a threat that if you don't, and if you have not been, you know, paying your taxes and reporting all of this activity as the government requires you to do, then that's where the legal threat comes in. But there's no claim that these are this is stolen property, right? And I think that when you're typically talking about breaking fungibility, that's what you're talking about. So taking it back to our bank example and our dollar bills for a second. So if you, you know, steal money from a bank, then one of the things that we see for movies is that they put these blue ink packs in there. Uh, right. And then uh, you, you know, the, you think that you've got you've gotten away with a million dollars and then you get back to your hideout, and you open up the bag and suddenly, bam, blue ink all over your face, which you can't really get off easily. So it marks you and then also all over the money. So the money is obviously literally marked um, by this this stain of ink that then makes it so that somebody wouldn't want to accept that because it implies that it came from this kind of stolen situation. In that type of situation, fungibility has been broken, right? Because the, the bills themselves become obviously visually marked in a way that makes it hard to spend them because you have to explain why they're covered in ink that typically is something that only happens when, when you've robbed a bank, right? Or that's where that's kind of where they came from. So like that, that type of situation isn't what we're looking at here. I mean, they could, the, the company could decide that we're gonna track who owns all these tokens and we're gonna try and try and, you know, make life difficult for them or something. And then if that was the case, then sure, uh, there could be a reason not to want them. But again, that doesn't appear to be the case here. They just appear to be desperate and in a bad situation and kind of, you know, they got the carrot on one side and the stick on the other and they're hoping that people go for one of the two because if they don't pick either of them, then they kind of are out of luck. I think that's fair to to view it that way and to view this not as necessarily a threat to the idea of fungibility. I do want to note that one way or another, it is vital in the, the crypto space that this be maintained because if it isn't, then all of those things that you talked about previously, like money moving around, flowing easily, and so forth, it gets a lot more complicated because you have essentially what you described as marked bills. And before you accept money from someone, you need to very closely examine that and examine who it's coming from. I think that if you zoom back at our, our as our society as it is right now, one of the things that's been on my mind a lot recently is the death of what I think of as bourgeois values, which is that in a in a particular kind of capitalist society, people are generally agnostic to who they do business with. They a customer comes into a store, their money is the same as anybody else's money, and their dollar bills are just like every other dollar 
dollar bill, as long as that person comes in and pays them and goes away, they're not really concerned with who that person is, their moral standing, their reputation in any kind of broad way. However, we seem to be at a moment right now where who you are getting your money from uh, matters a lot. The color of those dollar bills seems to matter a lot. I'm wondering if you, you had thoughts on that and to what extent that has any kind of interactions with the virtual crypto world. It's a good question. I think that I have been heartened by how, although cryptocurrency has largely, you know, for the past 10 years been painted with this this uh, brush of being primarily used for criminal activity, we have not seen any of these systems take off. We have not seen any of these fundamental threats to fungibility that might emerge, you know, from a well-intentioned government that just wants to stop money laundering or something like that. The reality of it is, is that none of that stuff has happened and it's unlikely to happen. A big reason why it's unlikely to happen is because these systems kind of just don't work, right? Like, to the extent, like talking about just Ethereum for a second, I'm going to get technical for just a second. Um, there are no dollar bills in the Ethereum system. It works a lot more like checkbook money, right? Where you write a check to somebody and then that person cashes it, uh, you know, or deposits it into their account. And in this case, the account would be the blockchain. Um, or in this case, the bank would be the blockchain, right? Um, and then if there's tokens in there, then there's some that are debited from your account and there's some that uh, probably remain there. And then you have a new balance in, in the account of the person who is receiving those tokens. Now, the uh, good part about this is that it's a very simple system. The bad part about this is you can't actually track which Ethereum or which of whatever token are going and which are staying, right? It's just a, a kind of a number. And so every time that you move these things, you create a number of problems. One is that you can't tell how many uh, tokens that you think are problematic actually transferred versus ones that you didn't. And so what happens in practice is that, as you said, you know, like, uh, you know, like, if we were not allowing, you know, uh, dollar bills that were used in drug transactions, right? To, to be, uh, which know, to be again, it. like that other example you gave of a vice, if you, you know, if you yeah. examine, uh, 10, uh, hundred dollar bills, yeah. uh, nine and a half of them would have traces of cocaine on them. Right. So that, that's really what happens here too, is that it's that if you can't track the specific units, right, you can't track the specific dollar bills, but instead you just have to track any place those dollar bills ever touched any wallet they ever went through any bank account they ever went through then you basically have a system where everything is blacklisted very, very quickly. Um, and it just is, it's completely unworkable. So we may see it deployed in a small, small scale again, like you can think about the same thing with dollar bills, you know, like when, when the ink pack explodes and those dollars are covered with blue ink, they may become very high priority and very easy to pick out. But again, there's a very visible mechanism that will prevent someone from accepting them. Whereas when you're talking about cryptocurrency, no such mechanism exists. We don't differentiate between these types of tokens. Your wallet won't tell you that, oh, hey, you just accepted a transaction that has something that's blacklisted. Now, wallets could be created that have those blacklists built into them. But then the question becomes, and this is, I think, kind of key to this whole space, who determines what goes on that list? Because it's an incredible power. And in the right hands, it could completely stop money laundering. It could completely solve every criminal usage that we might think of, but it's unlikely to be deployed in that way. Instead, what we'll get is a person, right? Or uh, several people 
whose job it is in order to do that. And humans are humans, humans make mistakes, humans have incomplete knowledge. And so in practice, you find that it just becomes a power that's exercised at the discretion of the person with very good reasons, with very good motives, but in doing so, they destroy the value of the thing that they are attempting to protect by making it too complex, by making it just too difficult to, to enact this sort of thing. If you had to check the serial number of every single dollar bill in your wallet, every time you spent it in order to spend it and the merchant had to do the same thing there and so did everybody else nobody would ever use dollar bills they would only use checkbooks right or or something that didn't have that burden and it's much the same thing here so it's a nice idea in theory but in practice it's completely unworkable and we have not seen it work yet i think another way to look at this would be to say that the only way to regulate this would be to regulate it absolutely but unfortunately we are out of time here uh, today. Adam, where can people find more of your writings and work? So uh, you can find me. I lead the podcast division. I'm managing editor of podcasts at Coindesk.com. And Coindesk is the top news source in the space for cryptocurrency news, has an absolutely fantastic team working there. It's one of the oldest outlets in the space too. Highly recommended. And you can find podcasts that I do, uh, the uh, Markets Daily Morning Show, seven days a week uh, on podcasts, uh, podcast players, wherever you find them. And then I'm also the executive producer of The Breakdown with NLW, which covers, uh, it's also another daily show, which covers kind of the macro environment and how Bitcoin fits into it and the kind of big picture power shifts that are, you know, continuing to reverberate throughout our world. I'm also the CEO of a company called Tokenly Inc., uh, which you can find at tokenly.com. And uh, we're getting ready to launch an AI art project next week, which uh, should be a lot of fun cool. where you can go and play with the future of, uh, of uh, creative uh, efforts by nature of AI. It's super cool stuff. We should talk well, about that. We'll have time. to have you back on to talk yeah. about that. Thanks so much for coming on, Adam. Thanks, Matt. Have a good one.